So let's begin with prayer as we continue our series in the book of Acts. Um, today we look at Acts 24 and 25, and so I have two chapters today. Thanks, Pastor Ashrick. And um, so somehow we, I'm going to try and work my way through two chapters. I probably won't get through all of it. We'll see how we go. Um, but let's pray. Let's ask God to be with us. Dear Father in heaven, we want to begin with you, Lord, because we can't understand anything without you. We ask for the Holy Spirit, the author of this book, to teach us, Lord. We've all come here today for different reasons, Lord, but I pray that all of us find this one thing in common, that we've come here to learn about Jesus. Father, every verse, every chapter in the Bible declares to us the love of God, and I pray that for all of us here today, that we come to know that, we come to experience your love, and I pray that You'll speak through me, use me as a tool in your hand to uplift the name of Jesus Christ. I thank you already. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, Acts 24 and 25 is where we pick up today. And really, to, to give you a bit of a setting, a bit of a context of what's happened is, in the previous chapters, Paul was in Jerusalem. He knows that uh, going to Jerusalem is really like a death sentence for him. He's been warned that if he goes to Jerusalem that he was most likely going to be imprisoned and probably killed. But Paul, being Paul, says that he's ready to go. He's ready to depart. He's ready to die for whatever it takes. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as the story continues, while he's there, he goes to the temple as a good Jew would, and he worships. And, and it doesn't take long for the Jews in, in, in Jerusalem to rise up in revolt against Paul. This is sort of a common theme we find in Paul's life. And they grab him, they drag him, they, they, they throw these accusations against Paul, claiming that he brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple, which was taboo to them. And so this sort of kangaroo trial kicks off and he's brought before the high priest. And, and as they're beating him and as they're really wanting to get rid of Paul, uh, eventually the Roman sort of guard, the, the officer, comes and sort of saves Paul, even though he's really procrastinating and he's enjoying the show as well. Eventually he gets out of hand, so he takes Paul. And Paul, as he's been taken into sort of, you might say, the prison, he says, can I talk to the people? And so Paul, in typical style, sees a crowd of people, even if they're angry, as an evangelistic opportunity. And so he pauses there and starts to tell his testimony. And when he gets to the resurrection, it, it starts up again. And so eventually they take him. And uh, here in, in, in Acts chapter 23, we see again that the Jews, a group of Jews, make an oath. They say, we're not going to eat until we've killed Paul. And so they, they think that that's the most religious thing they can do. They just, they, you know, you can, it's just, that's just the right thing to do. So that they make a vow not to eat until Paul is being killed. And so Paul gets wind of this and tells the, uh, the officer, and the officer sends Paul to the governor in Caesarea, whose name is Felix. And this is where we pick up. So Paul's been through quite a bit, and he's now really arrived in Caesarea. And to show you guys uh, a little bit about what Caesarea looks like, here's some pictures um, when I was over there. Caesarea, obviously named after Caesar, was sort of the capital of the Roman power within Israel, within the region. And this here used to be Herod's temple. Um, and it's some interesting stories when you're there. That actual pool is where he actually had some of his own family killed. Herod was quite a nice guy. And so this was Herod's temple, and as you look through, it is a beautiful location, and here we have the place where they would have the chariot races, and so they're still really well kept. This is where Paul was. This is where the scene is as we go through Acts 24, 25, and even moving through into 26, Caesarea is where 
Paul is. And again, looking here at the coastal city, a major trade route, a place of Roman power. And this is the very amphitheater you'll pick up in Acts 26, where Paul is brought before King Agrippa and others. So as we move now into uh, Acts 24, if you have your Bibles, let's pick up and see the accusations and the scene, the setting that's going on. Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, and here this is, this is Tertullus before Felix the governor. Seeing, sorry, there we go. Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. What's going on here is this man, Tertullus, he's a, a Greek. The Jews have basically hired him. He's an expert in the Roman law. And they say, look, we need to get rid of Paul. He's right now in the hands of the, of the Romans. We need to figure this out. We need to sort of use this system to get rid of Paul. And Tertullus would have said something like this, ah, Felix, I know Felix, the governor. He's a corrupt judge. And really with a bit of hot air, uh, even a bit of bribery, Felix will tend to do whatever you want. And so Tertullus comes along and he's standing there and before Felix and he really is sort of, uh, you know, just, just really trying to warm up uh, Felix here. And, you know, oh, excellent governor. And we know that you're so great. And he's sitting there going, oh, well, I know, I know. And so this is the way that Tertullus is approaching Felix. And he knows how to work Felix. Felix, we do know from historically that he was a, a corrupt sort of guy. And so let's look at the charges that's laid against Paul here in uh, Acts 24. They say in verse 5, For we have found this man a what? What does your Bible say? A plague or a pest. Uh, that's an interesting term. We found this man to be a pest or a plague, a creator of dissension amongst all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the who? Of the Nazarenes. And so essentially, we look at the main accusations here against Paul, and that is that he's a pest. The word here, pest, is really the root word pestilence. Yeah, he's a nuisance. He's an annoyance throughout the region. He's creating issues, a stir amongst the people. And not only that, but he's a rebel leader. He's a leader of, of rebellion. He's someone here to stir up uh, against the Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome. And so they're really setting this case out that this is no just ordinary theologian. This man is a rebel leader. He's someone who's against the state. He's against the church. He's out to cause issues. This is who Paul is. And not only that, but he's profaned the temple, the very thing that is our Jewish identity. He's brought Gentiles into the temple. So they lay these strong cases against Paul. Now, why is this important? Why do they do this? Why does it matter to Felix whether this man is a rebel leader or he disagrees with him or whatever it may be? Well, a good thing is to understand a bit of the history. When we look at the first century, it was such a tumultuous time. In fact, it was in this time that we have the Jewish-Roman wars. And I'm going to put up in, um, some dates for you here. If you notice the top date I've got for you, Paul was in prison under Felix in what year? From 58 to 60 AD. Now, look at where the wars were. Six years after this, we have the first major Jewish revolt. In fact, they've said that around 100,000 Jews died or were enslaved in the, Jewish, the first Jewish revolt. 
It was a time where the Romans could sense the tension. The Jews hated the Romans, and they were looking at every opportunity to create a revolt. It was in the air. It was dense. It was thick. You could feel it. And so the Romans had no tolerance for rebellion. So they knew that all they had to do was come up before the Roman governor and say, this man is a what? He's a rebellious what? Leader. He's of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he wants to do, do, do what to Rome? create a war, create a stir. And this will always prick up the ears of the Romans because for them, the Caesars have said, we want Pax Romanus. This is the time of peace, no more expansion. We are now going to control the region. The emperors had given the task and now it was up to these local governors. They were held uh, responsible for keeping peace. And whenever peace was not held, they would, their, knife, their head was on the chopping box, so to speak. And so Felix was under pressure. Uh, pressure. All of these Roman governors were, just as, were under just as much pressure as well because they had to answer to Nero. If they just let Paul go and he starts a rebellion, they would answer for it. So they're in between a rock and a hard place. Do they be just or do they just let this man go? What's, what's going to happen? And we also know that looking at these these are accusations against Paul. Who else in the Bible do we find similar accusations against? Jesus. When Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, when he was brought before the Romans as well, before Pontius Pilate, what did they keep saying? This man is a rebellious leader. He's here to, make, he's here to stir up the peace, to create issues, to create trouble. But when Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus, did Jesus have the persona of a frothing, angry, rebellious leader? No. Jesus' very persona answered the question to Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate, after having questioned with Jesus, could tell very quickly that this man was not a pest, he was not a rebel leader, and he was not profaning the temple, he was not doing any of these things. Even Jesus said to him, you think that if I wanted to be taken by you, that my people would let me take you? He says, my kingdom is not of this what? The kingdom that I'm after is not a kingdom of stone and you guys are caught up in the temple and these things. My kingdom is you. It's the people. It's the hearts of men and the salvation of all. Jesus came for that kingdom. Paul preached that kingdom. Stephen as well, Peter as well, all get brought before and accused of these things. You know what's interesting? Whenever you're walking for God, there seems to be this common theme. The Bible says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Isn't that nice? You know why that is? It's because the gospel is a message of change. The gospel is not a popular message to people who don't want to move from their position. And you're going to see this as we go through the chapter, as we pick up on what really is being preached here. This is a dissensuous, this is a tumultuous message Paul is seen as a pest. They want him dead by any means. Verse 7. But the commander Lysias came by with great violence and took him out of our hands. This is the Jews uh, saying what happened. They said, look, we were just trying to have a really nice trial with Paul. And then the, the officer came along in violence and took him out. Is that really what happened? No way. This is not what happened. They're, they're really just lying here. Um, verse 9, and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So Paul is standing here. He's in Caesarea. They've come and they've brought their scholars. They've brought this lawyer to stand against Paul. But have they brought any witnesses? No. No one's there to testify for Paul. No one's there to stand for Paul on Paul's side. It's a total setup. 
Now, Felix knows what they're up to, and he's, he's kind of just assessing the situation, and so he kind of delays it, and he sort of gives Paul this chance to speak uh, in the typical Roman way. He basically says to Paul, it's, chance, it's a chance for you to speak now. Verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, what does Paul say? It is much as I know that you have been here for many years, a judge of this nation. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Let's pause on this point. We know historically that Felix the governor was a corrupt judge. Not only that, but he was a tyrannical judge. In fact, here we have an ancient, uh, or a quote. Notice this from Tacitus who writes about Felix. How does he describe Felix? He says, in the practice of all kinds of lust and what? Cruelty, he exercised the power of a king with the temper of a slave. In fact, we do know that Felix was once a slave in the Roman Empire. He was one of the only people we know of who was once a slave who actually made it all the way to be not only a Roman citizen, but a Roman governor. And the reason why is because Felix's brother rubbed shoulders with the Caesar. And his brother got him out of slavery and got him to this position. But it seems that Felix always carried a chip on his shoulder from his past life. And as a governor, he was corrupt. He wanted money. He was cruel. And this is the setting. This is the person that Paul is standing before. But here's the thing. Is Paul angry? Is Paul disrespectful to Felix? What do you guys think? What does he say? That you have been here for many years, a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul is standing here, very possible, with his head on the table. This is, this is a situation where Paul could lose his life so easily. Yet Paul says, awesome, I get a chance to stand here cheerfully before you and share the message that I want to share. He knows what's going on. He knows he's being set up. But Paul is respectful. You know, it's a very interesting thing. It's so easy in our lives when people are corrupt or people are doing the wrong thing before us to spitefully speak against them, to say things against them, to do the wrong thing against them. But what does Jesus teach? Pray for those who what? Love your... Is that easy to do? No, in fact, your emotions will tell you everything else, but the principle should tell you, oh, I really don't want to pray for this person, but I'm going to pray. And when you do, you're doing the will of God. Paul lived out these principles that he taught. When Paul saw someone, he, when he saw injustice and people against him, he didn't stand for it, but he was never disrespectful. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and they punched Jesus in the face and they ripped out his beard and Jesus was innocent, did Jesus swear at them? It's a challenge to you and I to ask ourselves this question, how do we reply to the satanic attacks upon us each day? How do we respond to that workmate, that family member, that friend, that person who's saying things about us that aren't true? Do we respond in kind? Paul stood there. He knew what was going on, yet he was respectful, he was kind, but he held his ground. And verse 11, because you may ascertain, speaking to Felix, that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the what? The crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul is saying this, I went to Jerusalem 
I went to the temple, I spoke before the people. Felix, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in the region. You know full well who I am and that I am not a stirrer of the people. Where's the witnesses? Where's the evidence? He defended himself. He says, Felix, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I, I believe in the justice system. Come on. You know I'm innocent. Prove, prove that I'm a ringleader of some crazy rebellious sect that's here to get rid of the Roman Empire. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a what? A sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. It's an interesting thing, Paul here, Paul here refers to the way, and this is something that pops up through the book of Acts, as the new church, as the early church sort of explodes in Jerusalem, as it it moves through Asia Minor and into Macedonia and those regions, they're called the way. Now, today we refer to ourselves as what? Christians, uh, followers of Christ. And really that term first came up in Antioch and it was almost a derogatory term. They were these followers of this Christ. And, you know, when when you go overseas, and I saw many descriptions of almost ancient graffiti against the Christians, you know what they had? They had a donkey on a cross. And I have saw in places like Ephesus and others where they had like donkeys on crosses. This was a, a, a graffiti against the Christians. How stupid. They worshipped this God who was crucified. I mean, they couldn't get their heads around it. Yet, in the beginning, the Christian church, us, we were called what? The, the way. Now, here's my question. Why were the Christians called the way? The way. Why, why the way? In order to understand this, this gives us, you know, when we see this, this gives us a great insight into the message they were preaching because they must have preached a lot about the way. Now, by the way, who called themselves the way? Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Why does Jesus say this? I want to unpack. If you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 3. I've got to show you. This is really cool. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Here we have Adam and Eve have just sinned. Uh, sin has entered mankind. Adam and Eve are now being cast out of the Garden of Eden. And what's in the Garden of Eden? What do they eat from? The tree of life. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we pick up here the scene where God is casting them out from the Garden of Eden. They no longer have access to the tree of life because if they keep eating from the tree of life, what's going to happen? How long will they live for? And what will happen to sin? So God's like, I'm not going to allow sin to go on for forever. I have to put an end to it. So notice the language here. Jesus said, by the, what did Jesus say? I am the way. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, sin has happened. Man has been separated from God. They've lost eternal life. They've lost access to, Jesus, to God. They've lost all the privileges of heaven. And here they are cast out. But is there hope? Notice the words. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live for how long? forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the where? The garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now, notice this. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, that's angels, at the east of the garden of Eden and the flaming what? Sword. 
which turned every way to guard the way, the way to what? The tree of life. Hmm. Okay. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and as they were cast out, this way, now by the way, the word way is translated in the Hebrew and the Greek as road or path. Have you got that? So when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I'm the path, but here's the thing, the path to what? Eternal life. Jesus says, essentially, I am that way back to what? The tree of life. So the Christian church didn't just preach a message of some guy that turned up in Jerusalem and died on a cross. They're preaching a message that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. They saw themselves that what was happening here was larger than just a Jewish movement. This was global. This was larger than anything they could believe. And it was clicking for them in the book of Acts. Whoa, God is doing something huge here. And we're part of this movement. We're part of preaching that even though we were lost, even though we've lost eternal life, even though we've lost access to God, even though we've fallen into sin and and we're heading for eternal death, we have found that there is a what? Way back to where? Back to God, back to eternal life, back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sorry, back to the tree of life. So the Christian message is not just simply a message of a guy who died on a cross, but that message encapsulates the message, the core understanding that God is coming to make all things right. Ellen White summarizes the entire gospel message in one word, and I've said it before. Does anyone know what it is? Restoration. How cool is that? Everything that was lost here in this scene, Jesus is the answer. Jesus says, I am the pathway, the road back to God. No man gets to the Father but through me. What does he say? Because he understands the principle. By the way, all through the scriptures, it comes up over and over and over. Even David says, your way, O Lord, is in the sanctuary. The way, the way. Jesus always in the book of Mark, he's saying, I'm on my way to the cross. I'm heading to the way. Jesus is the way. And it was the way that they preached, the way back to God, amen? Paul says that I am a messenger, a servant, a preacher of the way. And we pick up in Acts chapter 24. As he stands before Felix, he preaches this message in verse 14, Matthew 24, 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way that call a sect... Now, why were they a sect? Because what, what um, essentially they were trying to preach was this. Jerusalem, the Jewish religion was a legal religion under the Roman Empire, but the Christians were seen as a sect or an illegal religion. They had not been given permission by Rome. But what Paul is trying to explain to them is that there's nothing new that we're preaching here. We're not preaching some other God. We're preaching a legal religion, a legal God. But what I'm trying to do is show you the bigger picture of what we're preaching. I'm a Jew, but I'm here to preach to you the fact that through the Jewish message, through our forefathers, Jesus is the answer to it all. He goes on. Verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. 
Over and over again, Paul preaches, Paul points us to the resurrection as the central message of the way or the Christian church. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Man, that's powerful. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob, a mob nor with tumult. He's saying, I came to the temple. There was no mob there. We didn't have swords. We weren't like looking to cause trouble. I came there to worship. Verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me or else lest those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Paul's laying this defense for himself in verse 21. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among men, concerning what? The resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul draws them back constantly to the fact that I'm not preaching anything new. I'm preaching about something that even causes dissension here amongst the Jews. Some believe in the resurrection, some don't. Why does Paul keep preaching the resurrection? It was around this time that Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church. And I want you to notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He preaches this message here of the resurrection. He makes this statement to the church. And this gives us insight into where Paul's heart is, where his mind is on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. He says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not what? Risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also what? Why does Paul say that? Paul's essentially saying this. It's one thing to know that Jesus existed, and this is important for Christianity. You can believe that Jesus was a man. He existed. He grew up where he did. He said what he did. You can even believe he did miracles. But if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you deny Christianity. Verse 17, he says, If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your what? Your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most, I'm going to use the word, miserable. Paul is saying this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then every single one of us only have a short time in this world and when you die, that's it. And we are of all men most miserable. You know, it's an interesting thing when we pause and ask ourselves, what's the purpose of life? I don't know if you've ever done that. Really sit down and, and ask yourself that question. What's the purpose of life? Why do I get up every day? What's, what, why am I here for the short amount of time I'm on this earth? What does it really matter? And let me tell you something, if you come to the conclusion and you don't have God as part of that conclusion, you'll be a very miserable person. But when you come to the conclusion and you realize that you're part of God's movement, that God has a plan for your life, that you're part of this great controversy, you have purpose. I cannot personally find purpose outside of the scriptures, personally. 
If I believe in evolution, if I believe that I'm just a matter of chance, if you take God out of my life, what purpose is there? The only purpose I then have is to enjoy life as much as I can. I don't care about you. Whatever's good for me, right? But when you're grounded in the resurrection, you look beyond this life, you realize that at the heart of the Christian message is that although we die, there's hope beyond. The resurrection points us forward. Paul was always looking beyond the troubles and trials of this world. Standing here, even before Felix, knowing that he was about to die, he preached with a smile on his face. He preached with a message of the resurrection. He preached with hope. Friends, I challenge you today that if the resurrection is not the center of your heart, I challenge you to draw near to Christ. Verse 22, Paul is preaching this message of judgment of the resurrection to Felix. Felix hears it, but then, of course, we know a lot about the story of Felix. Felix the procrastinator. Verse 25, he says, As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was what? What's that, what's that word? He was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Those famous words. We all struggle with the issue of procrastination. Felix, hearing the message of the gospel preached to him, looked at his life. He had power. He had money. He was enjoying the accoutrements of life. He was comfortable. And let me tell you, like I said before, the gospel is a message of change. When the gospel comes into your life, no matter what your status is, no matter what your financial position is, God is bringing a tsunami into your life. There's change coming. And if you're comfortable, if you're enjoying this world, you're not going to want to let go. And that is why so many people out there, and maybe even yourself here today, you're thinking, uh, I know it seems good, but I don't know. I mean, and you, all you think about is what you're going to lose as opposed to all that you're going to gain. And the main reason why we reject God is often we have this picture of God or whatever Christianity is as some negative thing. But friends, when you give your life to Christ, you gain everything. In fact, Paul even tells us that he had all the scholarship and the wealth and all the things going for him. And he looked back when he gave it all for Christ and he says, I count it all but dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know, the devil is constantly working in our lives and he's working in your life each day to draw your mind away from the treasures of heaven for the treasures of earth. And we come to church and we go about our day and we think everything is well, but that's when you're at your most dangerous. Because Satan is sitting there chipping away at the base and he's laying these seeds in your life that will spring up because you're not putting God first. You're letting your friends get in the way. You're letting money, whatever it is, that's where your heart is. Amen? Paul was not interested in money. He was not interested in fame. He gave it all up because to him, to know God, I mean, to know God was more valuable than anything you could offer him in this world. I remember a man when I was Bible working and I met him on the doors and I was, I was doing a survey. I was one of those really annoying people knocking on doors. 
and I, and I went to him and I said, oh, you know, you want to study the Bible and that sort of thing? And he said to me, yeah, I would. I actually, you know, I, I'm sort of interested. And he was kind of like this Felix guy. He knew of God and he was, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and, and he said to me, oh, I'm, I'm interested. There's some good stuff here, but look, Dan, I've just started a business. He just opened a pie shop. And that's when I really thought I want to be this guy's friend. No, um, he just opened a pie shop. And he said, look, I've just, he was in his 50s and he said to me, look, I've, I've, you know, I've retired, but I want to start this and, and um, you know, I've got some money. I'm going to put in this pie shop and I'm going to work hard. And I said, look, man, I said, the pie shop's important and, and, and I'm going to pray for you and support you in that business. But don't neglect God. What good is, even if your pie shop ends up making you $20 million a year, you know, hypothetically, what good is it if you don't have God? And I spoke to him about this and he nodded and he said, yeah, yeah. He said, hey, look, I'll, I'll call you. I've just got to, I'm busy this week, but I'll call you, Dan. He, he was under conviction. Weeks went by, weeks went by. And I would go to his house and I'd knock on his door and I'd see if he was there just to say hello. And he wasn't there. He was clearly busy. And literally two months went by. That was it. I thought, well, he's, you know, I'll just keep praying for him. And one day I was driving around. And I had no reception on my phone. I was, I was driving, it was through a country town. And I was just finished visiting people and I was about to head home and the Holy Spirit said to me, Dan, go visit this guy, the pie shop owner. He didn't say that, just I knew the guy. Get some free pies. No, um, go visit this guy. And so I was like, is that me or the Holy Spirit? And, and it kept, kept saying, I said, okay, I'll go. So I drive over there. Now, I've got no phone reception, nothing. I, I drove over there. I thought, well, he's probably not going to be home. I've tried before. Knocked on his door. And as literally, as I've walked up to knock on his door, he opened the door and he had a phone in his hand and my number. He goes, I was about to call you. Now, if he tried to call me, what would have happened? I got no reception. So he got the Holy Spirit dial going. Um, and I said to him, how you doing? And as I looked at him, he had like some, it looked like he had a fall and he had some bandages and stuff on. He said, oh, I had a stroke. He said, I was working so hard. I just collapsed. And he said, Dan, it's given me time to think and I was about to call you because I want to know Christ. God gave him a second chance. And I think for all of us, you may be a Christian, you may, you may come to church, but let me tell you something, God never gives up. God keeps working on us every week, every day. God is there drawing us closer to Him, bringing us closer to Him. And so often we get caught up in the confusion of the world that we put Jesus on the shelf because we think all is good, right? Can you relate? I can. And I want to just make this point to you. Something, one of the biggest challenges I find as I visit people in the church is we live in a world today that is so saturated with information that it's so hard to pause and to stop. Would you agree? Psychologists call it information overload. And I know for myself that the moment I, w- I wake up, I have this bad habit, I wake up and I grab my phone and I check my emails. Is that a good thing to do? Stress straight away kicks in, you know. And what should I be focusing on first? And the moment I do it, I start reading these emails and I read this and I've got to respond to this and I've got to talk and I get to the end of the day and I'm like, where's God in all this? And 
we live in this time now where we're so saturated with information, with a constant bombardment of, of stimulus, that it's so hard for us to just stop and to listen to God. And I want to challenge you all here today that you can find time for God every day. You can prioritize God because that is what we're called to do. If, if the relationship you have with God is the most important thing in the world, then make it the most important thing on your list. People say to me, I, I'm going to keep preaching. People, people say to me, I read three chapters or four chapters on the Bible today. That's great. But let me, you know, you know what really impresses me? Is when you read one verse and you apply it. Right? Right? Nothing wrong with reading heaps of scripture, but here's the thing. What we need to start doing, and this, is the, this is, can be one of your New Year's resolutions, okay? It's one of mine. We need to start learning it, but we need to start living it. We need to start learning it, but we need to start living it. Even today, we, you know, I'll sit and I'll hear like a great sermon or a great message. I'm like, oh, God's speaking to me. What am I going to have for lunch today? Right? We've got to start. When God speaks to us, let's stop and go, God, you're the most important thing in this world. I'm going to listen and I'm going to apply it. Amen? I want to finish on this point because I've gone way over time. You guys got me distracted. I just want you to take that. If I could leave you with anything, I think we can all relate to the fact that we live in a time today where we're so bombarded with things that really we don't need to be concerned about and to put God first, right? Let's start the year there. Let's put God first. Let's be intentional about listening and applying what God is saying. And if we do that, you're going to see God work miracles in your life. You're going to see God work power in your life. You're going to see the Holy Spirit poured out in your life. Place God first. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, it's a, a simple message this morning, uh, this morning as we've looked at Acts 24. Um, I pray that you challenge us, Lord. It, it's, it's one of the things we fall into is this complacency. We come to church and as awesome as it is and as much as we all do love each other and it's a great family, um, sometimes when you're speaking to us, we're not listening. And I just pray, Lord, that as you do speak to us, as simple as it may be, that we listen, that we don't let silly things get in the way of the most important thing, which is eternal life. Father, we know that your heart is burning because you want to love us so much and want to unite with us in a, in a deep and loving relationship. That's what we were built for. Father, I just pray that we, we turn aside the fickle things of this world to embrace the most important thing, which is you, Father. And I just give us the power, Lord, because we're not strong enough to do it. We're weak, we fall, we, we get tempted, we walk off the path, Lord, but please guide us, please strengthen us so that we may come to you, Father. Jesus is the way. And it is through him that we want to come to you and to unite with you and to be one with you. So I pray for everyone here that that will be the purpose of our hearts. 
and the fulfillment of this week to come, that we, we, we put you first. I pray that in Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen.